Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, a long time ago, way back in 2012, lots happened in eight years. Some of us were thinking that was 2019 was eight years ago. Uh, no, that's just October of 2020. However, a long time ago, back in 2012, Chick-fil-A was embroiled in a controversy. Now, I'm of the opinion that you can't really truly be a Christian and not like Chick-fil-A. And so, uh, so if you fall into that other category, that other camp, I'm available for counseling after the service today. But uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, almost. Um, what was the controversy in 2012? What it, it wasn't over the role of, of carrot and raisin salads. Anybody miss carrot, raisin salad? There's a, there's a couple, okay. Um, it wasn't over the place of coleslaw in the menu, although there are few, few things finer than Chick-fil-A coleslaw on a spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. If you hadn't ever had that, you have not ha really eaten. So, um, so I, was, I was devastated when that left. Uh, it was actually a lot more serious than those things. And that was the summer that Chick-fil-A came under fire for their support of pro-family and pro-marriage charities and ministries. In response to the criticism, August 1st of 2012 became known as Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. And you may, have, you may have been able to participate in that sacred holiday. I remember being there in the midst of the mania. Our local restaurants had to close early because they ran out of chicken. When Chick-fil-A runs out of chicken, you should be looking for a horseman of the apocalypse to be coming. Um, lines stretched around the building. Uh, the, we had a dwarf house there, which was kind of a sit-down Chick-fil-A restaurant, and they created traffic jams on the four-lane highway that it was situated on because of the crowds. I took some pictures. Here's a couple of photos. The first one is of the parking lot at the Chick-fil-A. Uh, the building is, is it's hard to see. It's back in the back behind those trees. Like, this was a grocery store parking lot, and I had to park in the grocery store parking lot to actually get... Uh, a parking place to, to go grab food because there was no getting in the drive-thru. Um, there was no getting in the drive-thru at all. Although I do believe that if you could put the Chick-fil-A drive-thru in charge of the coronavirus vaccine, we'd all be back to work uh, three months ago out there with their iPads. I mean, they've, they've got the thing well-oiled. The next picture is, uh, is of inside the lobby. Uh, sorry for the blur. I wasn't really anticipating using that picture eight years later in a sermon. Um, but that was inside the lobby there, and I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, now, because Chick-fil-A is a privately traded company, they don't report on their earnings, which is certainly their prerogative to do. However, they did confirm that August 1st, 2012 represented a record-setting day for sales. When you run out of chicken at Chick-fil-A, I think it's safe to say that's a record-setting day. You know, what was most interesting about the uproar of 2012 is how Chick-fil-A's CEO there, Dan Cathy, responded. In the middle of all of the controversy and media backlash, Dan Cathy reached out to a man by the name of Shane Windmeyer. Now, Shane was not your typical Chick-fil-A customer. He was the director of Campus Pride. He was a prominent gay rights activist and one of the early adopters of homosexual marriage. And Shane wrote an article for the Huffington Post, and in that article he said this. Uh, he said that Dan Cathy expressed a sincere interest in my life wanting to get to know me on a personal level. 
He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more so than being a quote-unquote Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. As you can imagine, Kathy was routinely criticized by those on the right, and the, uh, Shane was routinely criticized by those on the left, uh, all because of an attempt to reach out and connect with one another to understand the different sides of one another's argument. However, when we consider Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, we may actually find that Kathy's efforts are a, are a modern-day equivalent of Jesus' challenge to truly love our enemies. If you've got your Bibles today, we complete Matthew chapter 5 today in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to finish uh, starting in verse 43. Uh, please stand with me as we read God's Word in reverence in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God, I thank you for Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and they strike us as challenging, sometimes even impossible. God, may we be lovers of our enemies today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You need to remember in this long section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus offers these, these points and counterpoints where he looks at his listeners and says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. That you need to remember that Jesus is hearkening back to verse 20 in Matthew chapter 5 where he basically says that if you want to see heaven, if you want to be saved, then your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees. I've stressed this just about every week uh, since the end of August when we began working through this section that this is a tall order, that, that Jesus is asking his listeners to do something that his listeners would look at and say, say that, that seems impossible. Those guys are the rock stars of faith. Those guys are the people whose, whose righteousness, they, they set the standard. How can we possibly allow our righteousness to exceed the standard that has been set? And in fact, we may feel the same way. So when we go back, we realize that all of these teachings that Jesus has offered are, are very intrusive, very invasive. They get into our heart and they meddle around in places that, that we had kind of cordoned off and, and kept to ourselves. So we can't help but recognize this, this tall order that Jesus is making, and particularly in this passage as he tells us to, to love the unlovable. Not the dirty, not the downtrodden, not the unclean. He tells us to love the one person in all of our life that, that doesn't deserve our love, our, our enemy. 
Yet he wants us to love that enemy. We may have been tracking with Jesus up until this point, but now he's asking us to do that which seems absolutely impossible. Up until this point, even though it's been difficult what he said to us, it hasn't cost us anything. It hasn't hurt anything. Now he's asking us in these radical instructions for life in the kingdom of God, he's asking us to do some things that are going to start costing us some things. Because if we love our enemies, well, we look weak. If we love our enemies, our, our reputation is at stake. If we love our enemies, we, we may even face criticism from our own Christian friends. However, if we do love our enemies, we are truly getting nearer to the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we dig into this text just a little bit deeper, the, the first thing that we need to recognize is that there was a gross misrepresentation of the law that existed in Jesus' day and that Jesus brings to light there in verse 43. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's no secret. There is a biblical expectation to love our neighbors. It's, it's reiterated over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's a, it's a standard expectation. You don't ever, you, no one would say, I'm, I'm supposed to love my enemies? or love my neighbors if you've been in church any length of time you've heard you should love your neighbors but the bible never never ever says you should hate your enemy you won't find that in the words of scripture uh, again we need to remember there is always a conversation happening behind the words of the bible there, people are talking. There are issues. Just like today, if you read a newspaper article today and 100 years from now somebody started reading that newspaper article, they don't necessarily know that there's more going on that's not reported in that newspaper article. There's conversations that are had. There's stories that are being told. And that's the case in the Word of God. And it's clear through what we read from Jesus' words in the Gospel that there was a question, there was a conversation taking place over this simple thing. Who is my neighbor? Because again, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. So if I'm to love my neighbor, then I need to be able to define my neighbor. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan is birthed out of that conversation. Who then is my neighbor? Well, for citizens of the kingdom of God, there are lots of neighbors. The neighborhood extends well beyond our cul-de-sacs, well beyond our skin color, well beyond our social class. We have the potential as citizens of God's kingdom for lots and lots and lots of neighbors. So we better have big hearts if we want to love all those neighbors. What was happening, though, in Jesus' day is the religious leaders were taking the affirmation of the biblical command that you should love your neighbor, and they were extrapolating from that command a negative prohibition that if you love your neighbor, your heart is only so big, therefore, in order to love your neighbor, you must also hate your enemies. And so for the Jewish leaders in that day, that system worked out. Because, again, it gave them permission to, to, to not love the Gentiles. It gave them permission to, to hate their oppressors. It gave them permission to, to love only those who are like us and don't care for anything about those who are not like us, which is why the parable of the Good Samaritan was such a radical teaching from Jesus. And so if you love your neighbor, that's fine. You also have to hate your enemies. 
And that sort of teaching fomented a, a significant degree of racism and nationalism, not unlike where we find ourselves today. I, I think it's safe to say, I don't believe this is a controversial statement that I'm about to make, I believe there is a prevailing wind in our civilization today, in our society today, particularly in our American experience, that says that if you think differently than me, then you are my enemy, and therefore I am to have a gross disdain for you. I think that's, I think we agree there, that, that we're supposed to, to really, 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 we won't say hate because we're good Christian folks, but, but there's, a, there's a strong impetus in our society today that if you think differently than me, then I am to have a gross disdain for you. And whether it's politically, culturally, what, whatever the case may be, I'm supposed to have a, a gross distaste for you. That may be that way in the world. It may be that way in the halls of Congress and the, the, the Senate. It may be that way in, in all of those places. But it can't be that way in the kingdom of God. Just to make sure, Jesus confirms that enemies fall into the neighbor category. It should be also noted that Jesus is giving us individual guidance and family guidance He's about what our lives should look like. Obviously, a, a government uh, can't structure its police force and its, uh, its national or international foreign policy on the guidelines presented here. Uh, you know, the, the, I don't think that in the, in the situation room in the White House that they open the Bible up to Matthew chapter 5 and say, let's determine how we should love our enemies in this situation. Should we send a drone or a plane? What's the best way to love our enemies? I don't think that applies here. Jesus is giving us individual instruction, not about how we develop our foreign policy. So when people say, well, the Bible says you're to love your enemies, that means that you can't, you can't uh, go and, and, and attack somebody who's done something wrong. That, that's not where Jesus is going here. That's not a fair argument. No rational thinker would look at history and say the Allies in World War II could love the Nazis into submission. I don't think that was reasonable. The Japanese were, were clearly not interested in a loving relationship of mutual respect and admiration when they bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, Osama bin Laden was, was clearly not looking for love when he orchestrated the September 11th attack on New York City and Washington, D.C. If he was, then the old song applies. He was looking for love in all the wrong places because he sure didn't find it. However, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he's speaking to us, certainly as individuals. And so what is Jesus' correction? We've got false teaching that is prevalent in Jesus' day, and so Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but let me offer you the corrective, which is what he has done in each of these sections of this chapter. He has offered a corrective to the teaching that had gotten corrupted. So what is the corrective measure here? He says that as a kingdom citizen, we ought to seek to bless our enemies. There in verse 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and Pray for those who are persecuted. Specifically, Jesus says that we love and pray for those who are hardest to love and pray for. This is the epitome of how countercultural the kingdom of God is. Because in, in the kingdom of man, when there's an enemy, you don't love your enemies, you don't pray for your enemies, you dominate your enemies, you destroy your enemies, you crush your enemies. That's, how it, that's what it's like in the, in the world. 
But it's not like that in the, in the kingdom of God. This, this flies in the face of, of what our flesh tells us to do. The playground bully, how are we supposed to love that guy? That guy needs nothing more than somebody to punch him right between the eyes. That's what our flesh says. The guy at work who's undermining you or seeking your misfortune, how are you supposed to bless him? He needs to be reported to HR. Or if you're Dan Cathy, the media, the activists, they're hurting my reputation. They're hurting my bottom line. I need to go public and tell everybody just how rotten they are, just how evil they are, just how wicked they are. The list could go on forever. We face opponents and enemies in so many places, in so many ways. They need to get what's coming to them. Amen? Everybody's like, I ain't saying amen. I know what you're about to do. We're Christians. We don't believe in karma, but if we did, they need a good dose of it. What's most interesting is that we all, we all get that position. And I think if we're honest and we take a long, hard look in the mirror, we probably, we probably default to that position. But in the kingdom we bless. We do not curse. So our reaction to our enemies, though, is tied to our position in the kingdom. Jesus is getting serious here. Don't miss. Look at verse 45. He says, um, I'll back up to verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Love your enemies. Pray for them. So that, in order that, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What's he mean here? That, that we can't be in the kingdom if we don't love our enemies? I mean, we try, but we certainly don't get it right. What in the world could, could he be saying? You know, sometimes our enemies, they really anger us. It's hard to love somebody when they've really set us off, when they've attacked our character, when they've attacked our family. How in the world can I love that person? Surely Jesus does not expect me to bless that guy. I believe what Jesus is asking us to do here, though, is to look to his example. Because again, he says, he says here that if you want to be a son of the Father... This is what you got to do. Well, if I want to be a son of the Heavenly Father, then the place I need to look is to the perfect son of the Heavenly Father. Because I, I need to think like him. I need to talk like him. I need to have his mind replace my mind. So let's look to Jesus, the perfect, only begotten son of the Father. Was Jesus always sugary sweet to his enemies? No. He was very matter-of-fact with them. But at the same time, I can't for a second find a place where Jesus didn't actually love his enemies. And in fact, what I see from Jesus are things like weeping over the city that housed his enemies. As he was going by Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept. 
And the Bible says he wept because they didn't realize the time of their visitation. They didn't know their Messiah was there. He, he was so broken by the, by the city's unwillingness to receive him that it caused him tears. That's a man who loves somebody. But there's one moment that truly stands out as an incredibly bold reminder of Jesus' radical love for his enemies. As he was hanging on the cross, Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 34, that Jesus did exactly what he said he should do in the Sermon on the Mount. He prayed for those who persecuted him. And what did he pray? He didn't say, Father, would you create karma so that these men get what's coming to them? He didn't pray, Lord, send fire from heaven to consume these evil men. No. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if I'm to have the mind of Christ, I have to be able to look at even my greatest foe and seek to bless even them. I think we probably can all agree it'd be pretty hard to pray for the guy who nailed you to a cross. It'd be pretty hard to seek to bless the one who drove the nails through your hands and through your feet. It'd be pretty hard to bless the man who had just shredded your back with a cat of nine tails. I think if we're honest, for every blow of the hammer, for every strike of the whip, our flesh would cry out curses. It's hard to pray for people who hurt us. However, as citizens of the kingdom, as we grow in Christ, we ought to find our hearts more closely aligning with the heart of Jesus. And as we do, we learn to pray for the people who have done us the most harm. I quote D.A. Carson a lot because he wrote one of the greatest commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, but he said this. He said, to be persecuted because of righteousness is to align oneself with the prophets. But to bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align oneself with the character of God. You know, the manner in which we love is the primary defining characteristic of God's kingdom. Look at verses 46 through 47. He says, For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Even, even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what, are you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's easy to love those on your team. It's easy to love those in your tribe, 
The world gets this. Jesus points out a, a, a couple of groups here, tax collectors, Gentiles. They, they get it. Jesus picked some guys that were, uh, were at the bottom of the social totem pole when it came to the Jews. Tax collectors and Gentiles. We don't like those folks. We don't love those folks. Tax collectors work for Rome. Gentiles are just dirty, and we don't want anything to do with them. But Jesus says that they get this. They understand what it's like to love somebody on your team, to care for somebody in your tribe. They get it. But it's got to be different in the kingdom of God. Jesus said over in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. But the call to love in the kingdom has to go beyond the walls of the church. There's no reason that people inside the body of Christ ought not love each other. If there's reasons in this body that people in this body don't love people in this body, that is unexcusable, and it is an affront to the gospel message. However, Jesus takes it one step further, and he says that our love must go beyond this house and reach into every house, including the house of our enemies. But pastor, if I love that person, then I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating what they believe, and I don't believe what they believe. No, you're not. You heard what Dan and Shane, their exchange. Shane was the antithesis of what Chick-fil-A stood for, yet he wrote an article in a liberal newspaper, the Huffington Post, and said that he never once apologized for taking a stand for traditional values. You don't have to endorse the, li the, the lifestyle of someone that you love. You don't have to endorse their condition. In fact, if we're honest, in this culture, in this day and time, it is someone's worldview and their sinful condition that helps to define them as enemies. We're not being challenged from a persecution standpoint. There's no one with guns drawn in the yard threatening us if we come into the worship service. That's not the case today. Our enemies are coming from people who think differently and believe differently than we do. Yet Jesus looks at us and says, you ought to seek to bless those enemies, pray for those enemies, love those enemies. So this gets to the root of the question. How do you love your enemies without sanctioning their conduct. I appreciate what Martin Luther King Jr. said on this subject from a sermon in 1957 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. It's where I wish I could channel my inner black preacher and quote it like he would preach it, but I can't. But it says, when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most the person who has misused you the most, the person who has gossiped about you the most, the person who has spread false rumors about you the most, there will come a time, he says, when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of, of helping that person make some move in life. That's the time you must not do it. That's the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. 
Love is creative. Understanding goodwill for all men. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. You see, when you rise to that level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but you do not, but you seek to defeat the system. So does that mean that if you struggle sometimes putting love for your enemies into practice, that you're not real Christians? Well, how does Jesus conclude his teaching about kingdom character? He ends with a very simple request. This is easy. You guys write this down. It's the easiest thing Jesus has ever asked us to do. You ready? Two words. Be perfect. And since we've all got that last instruction locked up, let's sing the last song and go to lunch. Be perfect. That's all it takes. Be perfect. Man, he just made this way more complicated, didn't he? I mean, I was fine with trying my best. I could try to keep my anger in check. I could try to keep my eyes from wandering. I could try to watch my tongue. But be perfect? That's a hill too high to climb, ladies and gentlemen. I can't get there. But that's all I got to do. Be perfect. <laughs> As your heavenly father is perfect. So what do I do? I've got no other choice. I'm like Isaiah when he was confronted with the holiness of God. There in Isaiah 6 verse 5 he said, Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Over the course of these last 30 or so verses, Jesus has woven together this, this masterful argument. And it's designed, in, the, in his argumentative case here, it's designed to leave us absolutely broken and hopeless. And he concludes it with a simple request. Be perfect. And with that, I got nothing. Because the fact of the matter is, is that my righteousness can never be better than the scribes or the Pharisees because the Bible describes my righteousness in exactly the same way the Bible describes their righteousness, that it is nothing but filthy rags. And so if that is the standard, what am I to do? I'm like a criminal who has been confronted with eyewitness testimony, with video confirmation of my crime, and DNA evidence linking me to the scene. 
guilty as charged. And in that situation, the only thing I've got left to do is to throw myself at the mercy of the court. And that's exactly right. Because if my righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, I, I could try to check boxes. I, I could try to go back through here and, and, and hope that I get it right. But then he brings this devastating blow at the end, calling me to perfection, and I'm not perfect. Neither are you. There's one who is. In what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, God, in his love for his enemy, saw fit to let the perfect Son of God die as a criminal, which I happen to be, and take my best efforts at righteousness, which come up short every single time, and exchange it for his perfect righteousness that is right every single time. So that when I stand before God one day, and I stand there, he says, what have you done to deserve to be here? My answer is I've done absolutely nothing. Are you perfect? No, I'm not. But I can only stand in the perfection of my Savior who gave himself that I might have life. All of these challenges for us call us to a pattern of behavior that is representative of the kingdom of God. And in spite of the fact that we receive the righteousness of Jesus, doesn't mean that we're off the hook from loving our enemies or... or or keeping our vengeance. It, it doesn't mean that we're off the hook for, for our word. It doesn't mean that we're off the hook for, for how we deal with lust and divorce and anger. It doesn't mean we're off the hook on any of those things. But it certainly means that when we come up short, that we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. And so today I would look at you, and I would plead with you today that if you think for an instance that you've got, a, you've got perfection locked up. If you think for an instance that you've done all the right things to get you in the right place, that you're going find to out, find out one day that your righteousness is not enough. And so I would plead with you today to call on the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess your sins to him, to repent, and to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior so that you do have his perfection that far outweighs any effort that you can make. Would you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you for those profound words that you have given us. I want to thank you, Lord, for 
walking us step by step through through all these 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 character traits that should define us but then getting us to the end and revealing to us just how short we come none of us can reach perfection but in your love for your enemies we were enemies of yours before the cross in your love for your enemies in seeking to bless your enemies you bestow perfection upon us through jesus if we will but trust in him as Lord and Savior and follow him. And so, God, I would ask today that if there's any under the sound of my voice, whether in the room or at home or wherever they may be, that if there's any today that need to give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, because they know perfection is unattainable, that they would see their need for Jesus today, and would trust him as Savior and Lord. Lord, it takes courage to admit that we come up short. It takes humility to realize that we have a need. But God, in this moment, would it be clear and evident to all who are hearing of what their greatest need is today? And that's the perfections of Jesus bestowed upon us through his blood. Move in our hearts now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.